0: Well, good morning. We, uh, we're launching into a two-week series that we call um, a Sermon Biography Series. We do it the first two Sundays of every year and it's kind of the thing I look forward to every year. Two years ago we did Luther and then last year uh, we did Francis Schaeffer and then this year we're doing St. Augustine. And uh, why do we do a Sermon Biography Series? Um, the number one reason is just because I love history. Uh, I have four girls. Um, So I don't get to talk sports to sons, and as soon as they get old enough, they're going to just hear a lot of history, because I love history. Um, And then the second reason we do it is there's a benefit to being able to look at other times and places and things that go on, as well as people, and be able to kind of bridge to our own life and times and see things that we might not have seen um, if we hadn't looked and studied kind of other periods. So that's kind of why we do it. If you don't like history, it's plenty warm in here. This morning, you can just nap. It's all good that way. Uh, And then in uh, two weeks, we're going to get started on a a book study of the Gospel of John, which is going to take us um, through the end of the summer and maybe even into the fall. Um, So we'll be doing that in two weeks. So let's just go ahead and dive right in. Uh, St. Augustine, why St. Augustine? Well, I wanted to do something on Augustine uh, ever since I did a term paper on him in grad school. And I was amazed at how influential this guy was. and I never really thought about it kind of um, early on in college and when I became a Christian. Never really thought that he was kind of this giant figure. And just a couple things about uh, Augustine and um, I say Augustine out of habit. Um, Augustine, Augustine, whichever, I don't care. Um, but I'll slip into Saint Augustine because it's just my habit. So if you're thinking, why isn't he saying Augustine? Um, just because I'm not. That's, I, don't, I don't know. I had professors that, like, landed on both sides of that camp, and might my it's the other one. So uh, Augustine was one of the most prolific Latin authors in terms of surviving works, and the list of his works consists of more than 100 separate titles. 300 of his letters have survived in over 400 sermons of an estimated 8,000 sermons, um, which is pretty crazy. His works, including the Confessions, um, are still read around the world, and the Confessions is actually... Uh, thought to be the beginning of a genre of literature, um, of autobiography. So uh, St. Augustine's um, Confessions, this book that he wrote, talking about his state of mind, what was going on in his heart, kind of as he grew up and then came to know the Lord, is is thought to be the first in what we would call the genre of autobiography, certainly psychological autobiography, where you learn what's going on in his mind. Most um, of the classical authors talked about events and times and things like that and didn't write about themselves the way Augustine did. Augustine was canonized by popular acclaim and later recognized as a doctor of the church in 1298 by Pope Boniface. His feast day is August 28th, on the day in which he died, and he's considered the uh, patron saint of brewers. I don't know, it's fitting for Ben, right? Um, Many believe that we owe to Augustine our use of the the word heart for feeling, in biblical times, Uh, Or in in the Old Testament, certainly when it talked about the seat of our emotions, um, what we would use the word heart to describe, it meant the word was intestines. Um, In the Bible, it says heart because no one would understand if you were reading along and it all of a sudden said intestines, you know, it'd kind of throw us off. But kind of the, the Hebrew culture thought or used the word intestines for kind of that seat of the emotions. And Augustine is believed to kind of be the one that really popularized the use of the word heart. Um, He framed the concepts of original sin and just war theory. Before him, there wasn't a a, a philosophical treatise on just war. When is a war just? He framed the view of time in philosophy where God stands outside of time, that that time only exists when there's space, the the, the four-dimension space-time manifold kind of thing, that you have three dimensions of space and then one dimension of time. And time can't exist separate from space. And Augustine brought this to us, which kind of held sway all the way to the time of Kant. And then Kant um, further developed Augustine's view. So in the world of philosophy, he was huge that way. His uh, writings prefigured Descartes by well over a thousand years. Descartes birthed modern philosophy with his famous dictum, uh, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, which was a logical proof for... it's it's impossible to deny your own existence um, because to deny it you'd have to think and to think proves that you are and St. Augustine basically said it verbatim in many of his works well over a thousand years before Descartes. So outside of the Apostle of Paul, most people believe that there's nobody even close to um, Augustine in terms of the shadow he's cast uh, or the effect that he's had on Christendom as well as philosophy and many other disciplines. One of the reasons for that is that he was at the end of the classical era, right before kind of the Middle Ages, where the church had more power than the state. And so it was kind of frowned on to engage in philosophy or learning that way. And so for the Middle Ages, a lot of the thinking that went on was simply a commentary on St. Augustine. So he towered over the Middle Ages um, in his writings. So that's just a little bit about Augustine. What we're going to do, though, this morning is talk more about the times uh, in the Roman Empire, and what was going on in those times, and then make a parallel, um, make some application from St. Augustine's book, The City of God, and then apply it to our own times. Next week, we're going to get more into the life, and the writings, and the example, or some of the things we can take away um, from St. Augustine himself. So let's go to a timeline here, and we'll kind of look at some of the relevant dates. And I got a, I, I went to Walmart last night, because what do you do with when you have four girls, you go to Walmart. Um, and, uh, and I got a laser pointer because, you know, I miss those days back in the 90s where people in movie theaters would have these, you know. Um, but here's just a couple things uh, to, give you, to frame it out. Uh, in 313, Constantine proclaims freedom of worship for all religions in the Edict of Milan. And that's kind of—a lot of people think that Constantine, because he became a Christian—we'll talk about it in just a second— Um, made Rome a Christian state. That doesn't happen until later with Theodosius. He just simply made it tolerant for all religions. And so he kind of retracted what had happened with the Emperor Diocletian before him. And so in the Edict of Milan, he basically pronounces tolerance for all religions in the Roman Empire. Um, A couple things, though, because what it touches off is is, um, a huge change in the Roman Empire towards Christianity. Because as Constantine's coming in um, to kind of try and take power, and we have a picture of it on the next slide, he has this dream, and it's depicted on the right, he has a dream of a cross and a cloud, and he kind of hears this, in this sign, uh, you will conquer. So the next day, uh, the banners have this cross, uh, the Cairo, or the Constantine cross, on them, which is kind of the St. Andrew's cross, which is like an X. It's the Greek letter, Chi. And then the P is, is the Greek letter Rho, and those are the first two letters in Christ's Greek name, um, Kai Rho. And so in this sign, you will conquer. And he kind of comes in, and he wins against all odds. And so he becomes kind of a Christian convert, and we begin to see um, churches being built for the first time. So not just religious tolerance, but he actually engages in building, in, in some sense, Christendom. St. Peter's Basilica, was built by Constantine, the old St. Peter's Basilica. Um, So that's just a little bit about what's going on, and it changes everything. So if we go back to the timeline, um, we see the first of what's called the seven great councils of the church, the Council of Nicaea. So in a time of great persecution leading up to this, um, there's not really a a focus on doctrine because you can't bring everybody together. um, You can't structure kind of to Christianity. And so doctrine really isn't what's talked about. What's talked about is how do you endure suffering and endure persecution. And you see the beginning of kind of a change here. Constantine dies in 337. Augustine is born shortly after kind of into um, this culture. And 367, that's the date that marks the first time we see in writing, it's an Easter letter by Athanasius, the 66 books of probably the Bible you walked in with this morning. Um, those 66 books in that letter. Now there have been, all the way from the New Testament times, kind of an agreed-upon canon or standard of books with just a little bit of disagreement here and there. Is Hebrew supposed to be a part of it? Is this other letter supposed to be a part of it or not? But you see this kind of formalizing of this is really what passed the tests. The the tests of authorship. um, Was it authored by an apostle or someone closely related to Christ? Was it always recognized as authoritative in the church? and on and on. And so you kind of see the formalization uh, of the canon. 379, uh, Theodosius becomes emperor until 395, and he's the one that establishes Christianity as the official religion of the empire, and Arianism is suppressed. Arianism is the view that Jesus was just a man, and there was a time when he did not exist. So he was born and came into existence. Uh, Orthodox Christian doctrine is that before he came into existence as a man, he was with the Father. So um, the Son was with the Father, John one, we We're going to talk about that in two weeks, kind of answer that question. Um, and then came and took on flesh. That's the idea of the incarnation. And Arianism basically said, no, Jesus just came into existence and was kind of a great man, but he was not of one substance with God. Um, if we continue on, um, in 395... Uh, Theodosius dies, and we get a permanent division of the Roman Empire into western and eastern halves. Um, And the the second thing kind of goes with that. There was commissioned, with this Christian state, kind of a translation of the Bible into Latin. So if we go to the map, we can kind of see a couple things here. Um, What what had happened under Diocletian uh, was that the the empire had been divided into west and east to make it easier to rule. And then under Theodosius, he kind of comes back and takes control of everything again. But then when he dies, he leaves the west to one son, the east to another son. And that's the last time that the whole Roman Empire is joined together. So they go two different directions. Now, it's big for a couple different reasons. One of the reasons is that as uh, the church gains more power, and you kind of have a political separation here, the eastern church becomes a little bit different, has their own bishop in, in Constantinople, then the Roman Church, which is centered out of Rome and Italy, and that becomes, on the east, becomes the Greek Orthodox Church, with Greek writing, Greek language. On the, the left here becomes the Holy uh, Roman Church, um, owing to the Pope and with the official language, all the way up until after the time of the Reformation, or during the time of the Reformation, of Latin. And so the Latin Vulgate translation is huge, because for over a thousand years, it's the primary text that the Western church uses. So you see kind of this split going, and the church kind of follows with it. So if we go back to the timeline now, you'll see a couple other events that happen. So you've got this rise of Christianity, and then you see this turmoil begin to come into the Roman Empire. First with the German Visigoths in 410 that sack Rome, they do it for three days. And this touches off um, and gives the, the, the leaping off point for Augustine to write City of God, which is in, in some sense an answer to this. We're going to talk about that in a second. But Rome begins to come on the decline. Augustine begins to have to, to give answers to how can this happen? If we made Rome a Christian nation, then why would it all of a sudden become defeated and slowly, slowly begin to go on the decline? Maybe we should have stayed with the pagan gods. And so Augustine responds to that. Vandals invade North Africa in 429. Augustine dies while Hippo, the town in North Africa that he was living was under siege, possibly from starvation or disease from that siege. And then all the way up um, to 529, we see the academy being closed, the academy in Athens being closed by the emperor Justinian, which marks the end of kind of um, the, uh, the world of ideas and philosophy and thought that way. But let's just look at the map and kind of explain it just a little bit more, because this is really cool stuff. And you got to like it, because it's really cool stuff. So what happens was... Uh, Up here, before um, in in Augustine's time, the the Huns begin to come in from this area. And they drive the Visigoths into the kingdom, the the Roman um, Empire, and they're allowed to settle. Um, They've been kind of given permission, but they were poorly treated. So what ends up happening is those Visigoths kind of come down here, sack Rome, eventually go over here and create their own kingdom. And one of the people that, that... asked a question that precipitated the writing of the city of God to Augustine was, um, this whole doctrine of, Christian doctrine of turn the other cheek, just seems really bad for running an empire. And and one of the things he was saying is, hey, these Visigoths, we brought them in, they started acting bad, we turned the other cheek and look what happened. Okay, but So the Visigoths come in, eventually set up their kingdom here. Now something really interesting happened um, later on in Augustine's time. There was uh, a plot... By a, a Roman general to like kind of divide the the empire, so he told the um, emperor 's mother, because the Emperor was like only eight years old at the time, he told her hey there 's the general, um, and he 's plotting against you, and so send a letter to him, and he won 't come to Rome, and you 'll know that he 's against you so she sends a letter to him, and in the meantime the general sends a letter to this general and says you know what, they're plotting to kill you in Rome. You're going to get a letter from the em- uh, emperor's mom saying, come to Rome, don't go, because she's trying to kill you. She's so like working both sides, right? Um, and so this guy gets the letter and thinks, well, he's right, they're trying to kill me. So he talks to the vandals who are over here in East Germany, and he says, help me sack Rome, kind of makes this alliance, and says, I'll give you part of North Africa. Now he finds out in 429 that that really wasn't the plot, but it was too late because the vandals kind of liked the idea of having North Africa and sacking Rome. So they sailed down here at 429, and that's when they besieged Hippo. Um, they just decided to kind of do it on their own. And then uh, they take this area over, begin to take over the whole Mediterranean, eventually sack Rome in 455. Now, the interesting thing, when the Vandals sack Rome 455 for 13 days, they actually carted off with them a lot of the art and the kind of culture of Rome. And so they didn't, and they weren't any more hostile than anyone else sacking Rome, but they took some of the cultural artifacts with them. Now what happens is, since they're the last ones to really sack Rome in the classical era, that the people later in the Middle Ages that began to kind of uh, reverence the classical period, the classical era of Rome, and wow, wasn't it great because it's kind of gone away, and they reverence it. The people they're most mad at are the vandals because they're the last ones to sack it and because they took a lot of the cultural history or art with them, okay? So the term vandalism comes into effect for anyone who defaces art or meaninglessly kind of destroys something that took a long time to create, okay? So you high schoolers, like the next time you're beating up mailboxes, right? This is where you get the name for that, vandalism. Um, And don't do that. It's not good. Um, So this is kind of the backdrop of what's going on with St. Augustine. You have this coming together of Christendom, talking about ideas and beliefs, and who's right and who's wrong, what's orthodoxy and what's heresy. And at the same time, politically, or in terms of um, respect for Christendom, you begin to see that wane. So it sets up a really interesting thing. Now, Augustine writes this book, City of God. This is a 1,000 pages in this book right here. It's like really thin pages, okay? It's the longest treatise in all of classical literature that has one sustained thought or argument to it. It's the longest one. And he basically sets out to answer this kind of question of what do we do with these world events in Christianity. Um, Augustine had preached a bunch of sermons after the fall of Rome, and he'd even toyed with this idea, City of God and City of Man, long before in the late 300s. But the sacking of Rome in 410 by the Visigoths kind of becomes the, the point that he's able to kind of talk to. And part of that was precipitated by a letter from a guy that was kind of a nominal Christian hanging out with a bunch of non-Christians, um, and they're like talking philosophy, and people start asking, um, you know, it seems like Christianity is a bad way to run an empire if you turn the other cheek. And what about all these women being raped in the sacking of Rome? seems pretty unjust. And what do you say to that from a Christian perspective? And what do you say when Christianity seems to be losing out and, and it doesn't make sense, if there was a God and we were worshiping him, wh- worshiping him, why wouldn't it just expand and grow and become like this empire of peace or whatever, okay? And it's a lot like a bunch of guys in bands being at, uh playing poker and talking about world events and asking these questions about rape in the Congo. How can a good God allow that to happen, or um, eight million Jews being killed and genocide you know let 's talk about that and analyze Christianity against that. What do we say to those kinds of things, or churches like um, falling apart or leaders going astray or things that that, that happen that shouldn 't seem or that seem like they ought not to happen there's no reason for it to happen and so how does Christianity answer that and so Augustine gets this letter, and he begins writing this book, and then he just writes and writes. kind of like Forrest Gump when he ran, right? You know, he just writes and writes and writes, thousand pages in this, okay? Um, and it's fascinating. What Augustine does is he sets up kind of this idea that, hey, um, there's a city of, of man here, the temporal world, and then there's a city of God or heaven. And the stuff on the city of man is going to go up, and it's going to go down And when it goes up, we get excited, sure. And when it goes down, we get disappointed, sure. But the whole point is, is we're we're strangers here on this earth. We're not a part, our citizenship isn't a part of the kingdom of man. Our citizenship is a part of the kingdom of heaven. And so even as things go up and things go down, we look to the heavenly city. That's where our allegiance is. So the thing that kind of comes from that, because we're strangers here, is that we don't have any privilege on this world, but we do have responsibility. We don't have any privilege. We can't have expectations for a certain kind of um, um, kingdom to be established on the city of man in this world, but we do have responsibility to live out the values of the kingdom of heaven. So you see Jesus, right, in the Beatitudes, he talks about blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because they will be called sons of God. So the privilege that we have is to be called by names or to have an inheritance in the heavenly city. Our privilege isn't to inherit things in the earthly city or the city of man. Does that make sense? So you have this thing continuing up here while the, the earthly thing kind of goes up and down. And you see Paul talk about the New Testament. I've learned the, the benefit or the secret or, of being content no matter what circumstance. So whether I have a lot, things are good, or whether I have little and things are going down and I feel disappointed, I've learned to be content. Why? Like, how can he be content in that circumstance? Because he's still responsible to live out the values of the heavenly kingdom. Justice and mercy and love and hope, right? But his heavenly city awaits for him, so he's able to look forward and to put his hope on that and say, these things are small and they're momentary. And they're not, they're not where I'm really um, putting my heart. So Jesus says, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Okay? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Augustine really takes this whole motif of the heavenly city and really just explains this. And he goes off and he like diverges on philosophical points left and right. But this is kind of what he's saying. I want to read just a, um, a brief thing by... Uh, because it's hard, because Augustine's so verbose, it's hard to get like summary statements out of the city of God. Um, so James O'Donnell's kind of the preeminent uh, Augustinian um, scholar, and so here's one summary statement um, in an essay he writes, and so I want to just read that to you a little bit here. It says this, Human history between Adam and the second coming is thus radically incoherent. Up and down. There's one readily visible pattern for the earthly city, marked by disasters and wars, public and private, of every kind. But there is another pattern, dimly visible, but obscured by sin, according to which the heavenly city lives. It is the task of revelation to remove the scales from the eyes of those who would look for this pattern. It is the role of exegesis to bring home that message. So what he's basically saying, O'Donnell, when he summarizes Augustine's message, is that Augustine is saying... Um, we look at the city of man and it's distracting and it's confusing and there's going to be wars and there's going to be up and down and it's kind of incoherent and illogical and haphazard and it's confusing. And um, Augustine will say, it's mysterious how God's justice works, but someday we'll look back and we'll understand that he was just and all that. Okay? So the city of man's haphazard. But if you look for it, there's a visible thread of the heavenly kingdom here. Okay? And, and we have to see that. And Augustine says it's the role of Scripture and looking at the Word of God and of exegesis, of teaching and preaching, so that by hearing you would understand and you begin to slowly discern kind of the heavenly kingdom at work in the city of man. Okay, does that make sense? It's why uh, the Christian church has always valued the exposition of Scripture. The, the Hebrews before, um, were, we've always been a people of the book the lineage of our faith has always been one of Scripture and of of the book and of teaching and preaching. So Augustine actually says, Exegesis, which is taking and pulling out the truths of of Scripture, has this role in opening your eyes and and helping you see what God is doing in this world. And if you've gone to church for a long time or if you do a lot of personal Bible study and reading in Scripture, you know that one of the ways that God seems to speak to you is when you're reading Scripture and things become clear. Has a way, God just really has a way of speaking to people through Scripture. It's called a living book for that reason. Okay, So this is what's going on with um, the city of God. Now it's interesting because what happens is um, when we get caught up in the idea of a socio-political territory where our values as Christians can kind of dominate and be in, in, uh, at the forefront. We get caught up in that. Augustine says it's not going to happen because if it was going to happen, if it was ever going to happen, it would have happened when Solomon reigned and he had this great kingdom and it was when he first builds a temple and God dwells with his people. So if the idea of God was just to expand and expand and expand and do this thing, it would have started there and it would have continued. And we don't see that. We see Solomon's kingdom being like ripped in pieces and eventually kind of carted off. And so Augustine's saying that's not really what God's doing is creating this space in the city of man for the socio-political kingdom, okay? Yet the Pharisees, what they were looking for, the religious people of Jesus' day, what they were looking for was for Jesus or the Messiah to come and actually reestablish this socio-political kind of area, okay? It's what everyone was kind of hungry for. And when you look at it that way, you need to expand your territory. That means somebody else that has your territory is your enemy. And they have to be pushed back They have to lose and you have to win so that your values can take back the territory and have kind of the land, so to speak. So Jesus comes in and what the Pharisees are all concerned about is the Roman Empire and how we're going to deal with external things because that's where the battle's at. And so people ask Jesus questions like, what are we supposed to do with taxes to Caesar? And Jesus is like, look, whose face is on the coin? and give to Caesar what Caesar's, I don't care. What I care about is what's going on in you, because the whole idea of you submitting to God and allowing the kingdom of heaven to reign in your heart, where you follow my teachings or you submit to God, that's really what I care about. I don't care about the external. The battle I'm talking about is is waged right here in the human heart. And we're going to get into that next week with Augustine's Confessions because he's you know, one of the, the great Christian writers that really understands where the real battle's at. And so Jesus looks at these Pharisees because they're always drawing lines in the sand and making good guys and bad guys. And, and Jesus is like, you haven't even cleaned your own hearts up yet. You're so worried about this external battle that you don't even realize that inside, you're just full of dead man's bones. So Jesus kind of goes right at it. So it's an interesting um, parallel to what's going on in Augustine's time, and he's trying to answer these people, and he's saying it's not about the kingdom of man. It's not about taking back territory. It's not about these things. It's about the kingdom of heaven in everyone's individual life as they wage this battle kind of with their own heart and with sin. And he formulates this doctrine of original sin. Okay, so that's just a little bit about this. I want to transition now, because I think there's an amazing parallel to um, 20th century America. Okay, now in 20th century America... Um, people always thought that America was a Christian nation, and I think they just thought it kind of by default. um, But it wasn't necessarily um, true that it was always a Christian nation. It it was amenable to Christianity, right? But in the late 1800s, you see the liberal influence of the German higher criticism, and you begin to see people in America no longer trust um, scriptural authority or believe in God. Uh, And you see a lot of things beginning to happen in the late 1800s. And there's a reaction to that by the church and by orthodox um, thinkers. And what there's councils kind of that happen, and these, there's these things called the fundamentals that get distilled out of that. And so a conference in the late um, Niagara Conference in the late 1800s is turned into a bunch of essays in 1910 that's predating this um, General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. And that book, those series of books, are called The Fundamentals, 1910. And in um, 1910 is where we first see kind of the word of the phrase or the idea of fundamentalists come about. So you see this backlash against liberal thinking, and you see people saying, we've got to bring it back to the fundamentals of the faith, scripture and these other things, because ideas affect people. And I, I believe these people, these men and women, were probably highly motivated um, to do good and to preserve truth, right, for individual people. But so in 1910, you see the beginning of fundamentalism. 1929, uh, the Presbyterian General Assembly goes in a direction of being a liberal church by replacing the leadership of Princeton Seminary, which is the preeminent theological seminary of the day, with liberal leadership. So you see J. Gresham Macon and a bunch of other scholars leave and set up Westminster uh, Theological Seminary, and you, you get this huge now rift, and a bunch of explosions and denominations. And I'm sure if you know church history, um, if you ever wondered why there's so many like, little denominations, just, everyone was just trying to find their own identity because it was really confusing in those, those times, right? So this is kind of the battle. But then all of a sudden you hit the Great Depression, World War II. And then coming out of World War II, you're in the vacuum of um, communism, uh, the Cold War. And what happens with that is that um, Orthodox, solid Christianity skyrockets. So you see kind of America become, I I would say for the first time, embrace this idea of we're a Christian nation. Uh, The war pulls us together. The fight against communism pulls us together. And you see America become kind of in its own psyche a Christian nation. So I'll illustrate that one one way. Um, In 1956, the 84th Congress of the United States under Eisenhower's uh, administration voted in that the national motto of the United States of America would be, In God We Trust. The first time In God We Trust ever shows up on money was in 1957. Did you know that? I mean, people of my generation, I thought this for the longest time. I just thought it had been there since like the 1700s, right? It was 56 under Eisenhower that the Congress of the United States votes in that the national motto is In God We Trust, Okay you see this explosion of religious affiliation. So what happens is um, everybody kind of becomes just affiliated with a church or a church goer, goer in the United States. And then the, their children come up. And their children think that while, I mean, I grew up and look at my grandparents and my parents, everyone just goes to church. Uh, America was just always a Christian nation. That's the assumption. And they kind of walk away from it. So it's a lot like the book of Judges chapter 2 where you have this generation that knows God or fears God and then their descendants come up and they, they, they neither know God nor fear God. And you see kind of this backlash in the 60s and then in the 70s. You see that interesting kind of pendulum swing. Okay? And what's funny is it was a season of American life where um, church affiliation and church membership just skyrocketed and the assumption was that it was always like that and it, it wasn't always like that. But in the in the backlash to that, America has become a pagan nation. Um, hands down, America as a whole is a secular nation, pagan nation, secular nation. Um, I went to college in the South; they don't know it yet. Okay, they still think the battle's on, the good guys and the bad guys. What I love about um, Oregon is everybody knows it. I mean, it's that fight's not still going anymore. We're Christians living in a secular culture. It's a lot more simple that way. Let me illustrate it by a Newsweek graph. Um, In Newsweek, if you see this, the Northwest has no, the dominant religious affiliation in the Northwest is none. Okay? Um, It is the least religious area of the United States. Um, Actually, if you look at statistics, they, they track it every year. Oregon and Washington will trade, they fight every year, for um, the reputation as being the least religious state in the nation. Okay? Oregon and Washington, neck and neck every year. And so we live in the least religious state, essentially, in the United States. So this idea of Christendom, or America being a Christian nation, like just isn't what we live in culturally as we walk around. Okay? Okay? Um, The fact is, the whole thing is shifting too to where if you look at the population growth and the growth of Christianity, there's only one state in the whole uh, whole of the 50 states where Christianity is growing faster than the population growth. Any idea what state that is? It's Hawaii. It's the only state where Christianity is growing faster than the population growth. All other 49 states, Christianity is, is just shrinking. It's becoming extinct okay? Um, it's going backwards, okay? But we live in the least religious state in the nation, so what's funny is, after this time of kind of re- religious fervor in this idea of Christendom only 40 years ago or so, we now live in this era where it's kind of a foreign notion to us, so much so that in another uh, Newsweek article on the decline of the church, here's what was written. It says this, at this rate, tomorrow's generation may know the old neighborhood church only is the best restaurant in town. So like, you know, you went to McMinniman's last night, right? (laughs) Um, It's basically saying that we're on a path kind of to match Europe where these great buildings that used to be churches now become cultural centers or businesses or restaurants or pubs um, because it's on the decline that way. So we're in a situation a lot like Augustine. I think our generation asks a lot of questions, not triumphalistic questions. Look at Christianity, we're winning. We're pushing them back and we're winning the cultural war. We're winning the socio-political war. We're taking back territory. Uh, George Marsden, who's the foremost scholar on fundamentalism, says that if you want to understand Christian fundamentalism in the last hundred years, you understand it simply in this terms, in terms of a war. He says that's the dominant motif or, or mental image of fundamentalism is battle or war, with the liberals or with secular culture, and so this whole idea of um, of triumphalistic battle and winning and, and lines in the sand and good guys, bad guys that that kind of came to dominate the last 50 years, like that's just not where we're at. I mean, it's not where I'm at, um, and I think it's easier. Most people think fundamentalism, man, what was the downside of that? I'm sure there was a lot of great people with a lot of good motives. The downside of that is they got so tied up in the city of man that they neglected the values of the city of heaven that they were supposed to be living out. Values like justice um, and helping the poor and the oppressed, right? Um, There's things that the battle between good guys, bad guys obscures. And we, we look at the fundamentalisms and we say, man, they were defined by... Like, againstness. And if God is love, shouldn't there have at least been some kind of mercy or grace element, right? So that's the downside, and I'm sure there was upsides. But what's fun is, it's not where I'm at. and That's not where my friends are at. Like, we're not looking at the, the lines out there and the good guys, bad guys. We're looking around and saying, man, who's authentic? Show me someone who's authentic. Like, that's really living this sold-out life, submitted life to God that shines, uh, the kind of life that Jesus says they're going to know you're a Christian, why? By, by your love for other people. Um, or that you're such a servant, or you're so humble that I get to exalt you. Like, where are those people? And so what's fun about living in Bend or about living in Oregon is the distraction of kind of these triumphalistic kind of or, or battles or external things are kind of gone. And there's just a lot of people hungry for an authentic church. Authentic missions. Authentic pastors or husbands or wives or whatever it is. Um, the stuff that's going on in the inside, which is cool to me, right? There's questions that come in the backwash of messiness. Like I was talking about, what do you do with rape? What do you do with the AIDS pandemic? Um, what do you do with uh, injustices even around the country? What do you do with churches that that have lost their sense of identity and they don't look like a church? Um, what do you do with these things What does God say about these things? How do we hang on to our faith in the midst of these things? How do we have confidence despite those things? And I think Augustine in in his confessions in reminding us of these things is a huge piece of that. Now I want to just simply ask, oh, actually, you know what? Turn to Ezra. Actually, I got it on the screen. You don't have to turn there. Um, There's an identity confusion that comes, I think, with two generations, one that saw the glory of Christendom, when you could turn on the TV and everything had family values, right? And another generation that didn't know it at all. And you see kind of an example of this paradox in Ezra when the exiles, you know, so you had Solomon's temple, it gets destroyed, people are carted off into slavery. They come back and they're going to rebuild the temple. And so they frame out the cornerstone and um, they're going to have this dedication now because they've got the cornerstone to the new temple. And listen to kind of how this thing goes In Ezra chapter 3, starting in verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with their trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols, um, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. They sang, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests from the previous generation and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping. Because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Why did the Levites and the older generation weep? Well, the answer was this cornerstone um, was nothing like the grandeur or the glory of Solomon's temple. It was a meager thing by a bunch of exiles that had returned. And so here you've got the people that served in this glorious, huge, wonderful temple of the Lord, and they're seeing the, the kind of rebuilding of this thing And they're grieving like, that's not going to be anything like what I remembered it being. It's not going to be near as great or grand. Oh, it's not what I want. And you've got the younger generation that's never seen such a thing. That's all they know. And they're just like, man, this is so cool. And they get excited. We have that same tension in um, American churches today. We have disillusioned Christians that are saying, you know what? It's lost. Um, it's never going to look like it did. Uh, it was so great before when churches were thriving or um, everywhere you went, like the mayor was a Christian, and this was a Christian, and that was a Christian, and you could turn on the TV and it was this way. And, oh, it's just not going to be like that anymore. Now you've got a bunch of people in my generation that, that are, are loving the idea of church plants and things like this. And we're looking at, like, um, authentic groups of people that are, trying to live out this call to follow Christ and we see cool things happening and we don't have like that other standard to judge it against and we're just like stoked man I can't believe this like there's actually like this many people excited about God and doing this or starting small groups or or like meeting in coffee shops this way or choosing to have these values and to live for other people not just live for themselves and and that's all we kind of see and we're just so fired up and excited and it's, it's a difficulty. There's this tension, this identity confusion that comes in with those two different generations. And you see kind of the same parallel. And in this, we see, I think, Augustine's whole message of City of God, City of Man, and say, we have to celebrate when things are good. Sure, it's the way God made us. And we grieve when things are bad. But let's not fall into the trap of being caught up in the external socio-political things to the degree that we lose sight or we're distracted from the the city of heaven working in our life or in the lives of other people. That's just where we've got to be. So here's the interesting thing to me. Um, When America was Christendom, what does a church look like when America's Christendom? I was thinking about it uh, this Thanksgiving at the table. I don't like doing dishes. Um, and uh, and so there's enough people at the Thanksgiving table. You know how they. I mean, there's other guys in there like this, that you know if you just sit down and keep eating and eating, and and act like you're just busy eating. You know that sooner or later enough other people are going to clean the table that you just don't have to do it. Right? Um, there's just no need for it. And I think what happens is in Christendom the role of the church really lost the idea of the body of Christ. This is the body of Christ. It's, it's his body. He works through the church to, to like reach out to, seek and save a lost and dying world. When you look around, no one's lost, no one's dying. I'm going to keep eating, meeting my own needs, and I don't really need to serve. Why? There's plenty of other things that are going to do that. It's like a light. The, the church is supposed to be a light. And when you're in a room full of light, you, just, you look at your flashlight, and you're like, I don't need this and you turn it off, you put it away. And so the church in the midst of Christendom just takes on this flavor of there's no sense of urgency of living as a witness or as a light, and it takes on this kind of idea of social club. Let's just meet each other's social needs, and it'll feel good that way, and that's really all we're going to kind of do or focus on. Now, a church in the middle of a pagan culture that's unchurched, all of a sudden has to be the body of Christ and to serve. Our call to be a witness, because that's what we were called to be, Augustine kind of concludes the city of God by saying that we are to be witnesses. He uses that phrase, witness. Um, uh, his confessions, a similar word for that is testimony or testify. Confessions, it's, it's his testifying to what God did in his life. He's living this thing out himself. And he's saying, we as Christians are witnesses to what the kingdom of heaven is doing in our life, and we live that out in this sphere, the city of man. And so when a church lives, is in the middle of kind of a pagan culture, our identity feels different, and we have to live kind of as missionaries. The word missionary 50 years ago meant sending people to pagan nations. No, you support somebody and you send them to those heathen countries. What happens when America becomes the heathen country? Who's the missionary? You. Whether you work in a coffee shop, whether you work at a dentist office, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whatever you do, you now are the person that other people are going to look at and see something different about. They don't have your same worldview. They don't know Christ the way you do. You're the person they're going to look at and and determine their opinions, or see what they think about Christ. You're the witness. If you're the witness, then you're the missionary. You're the one that's, that's bringing the mission and the call to this culture. I mean, I, I articulated that absolutely horribly, but let me try and say it one more way. You have a responsibility to live out the values of the kingdom of heaven In this world where you're a stranger and you're not a citizen, so the people you come into contact with will see your life and glorify your God. Your God will look really big because of you. A team that plays really well together on the football field makes their coach look what? Really good. It brings glory to him. A church that functions really well as a body or as a team or a family unit that functions really well as a body or a team, when people look at that team, it brings glory to their coach. It makes God look really good. So that's what's going on. So this whole idea of externals is a distraction. I love, um, I love what Karl Barth said after World War II, and he was a German theologian, and three years after World War II, Uh, They had this convened, this kind of world council of churches. And Bart's an older theologian at the time, venerable theologian, and he writes this um, essay in this national magazine uh, on the heels of kind of this council. And and look at what he says. Um, He says this, What objection could we really make if it should please God to carry his work onward and reach his goal, not through a further numerical increase, but through a drastic numerical decrease of so-called Christendom. It seems to me the only question in this matter is, how can we free ourselves from all quantitative thinking, all statistics, all calculation of, of observable consequences, all efforts to achieve a Christian world order, and then shape our witness into a witness to the sovereignty of God's mercy? By which alone we can live a witness to which, uh, by which alone we can live. A witness to which the Holy Ghost will surely not refuse his confirmation. What's the grand goal? And we have to align our understanding in the depths of our, our, our heart and our soul with the grand goal that God would have. It matches his. And I think the grand goal is not numerical size. In the Old Testament, God keeps... He does this really interesting thing with the Israelites. He keeps, like, killing off bunches of them. Like whole tribes. He keeps pruning it down. And he says, you don't understand. I didn't choose you, Israel, because you were the biggest nation in the world. My goal wasn't size, okay? My goal wasn't quantity, My goal was quality. I wanted a people who would fear me and know my name. A people who would be in relationship with me. And size was never what I set out to accomplish. As we look at Bend, as we look at this country, authenticity, really being in relationship with God, loving God, loving others, and bearing witness to that kingdom of heaven really is the meta-goal. And if size is going to happen, it's because God grows his church. Apollos, uh, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who makes it go, grow. And Jesus said to Peter, um, upon this rock, I will build my church. We don't grow the kingdom. We get to live out and be a light or be salt to the kingdom of man as representatives of the kingdom of heaven. And when God so chooses, he blesses, he confirms that kind of witness and he chooses to grow the kingdom. The interesting thing about salt and light, the two metaphors that that um, are used by Jesus about the kingdom okay uh, are transformative things they 're not dominant things they're things that are transformative of the dominant thing. The idea that we 're supposed to fight for Christendom so that we 're the dominant thing kind of is backwards from the whole idea of us being salt and light, which is transformative in the culture in which we live. Does that make sense? Let me just leave you with this verse in Luke. See, the idea is that uh, the kingdom of God on earth is where Christ reigns. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not marked out by territory. Wherever Christ reigns in the heart of a man or a woman, that's the kingdom of God on earth. Listen to what Jesus said, Luke 17, verse 20-21. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, the external, sociopolitical kingdom, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Um, so what does it look like? to live out the kingdom well, what does that really look like for us as Christians to live that out okay, that's what we're going to answer next week when we look at Augustine and confessions and kind of all that stuff um, so all you need to do is like just feel really frustrated right now and then leave and next week we'll talk about what it looks like to live as witnesses of the kingdom of heaven let's pray Father help us value your church for authentic reasons Help us be moved by your plan to help us fight this battle in our own hearts, internal to ourselves, because we don't want to submit. We don't want to humble ourselves. We don't want to serve. So just um, with this church, with these friends of mine, with myself, just as we gather, as we worship, as we proceed through the week, as we try to be a light in our workplaces, in our families, in our neighborhoods, I just pray that you would renew our strength that you'd be the source of our power, uh, the thing that fuels our grace and our love. That our quest for justice, for our our, our neighbors, for um, blessings for the poor, those things would be rightly motivated because love begets love. And we first need to just encounter your love for us if we're going to be able in any kind of an authentic way to love other people. Overwhelm us by your love, by your presence, by your care and concern for us. Help us understand that we do have a hope fixed in heaven and we can store our treasure up there that we can look forward longingly to where we will go and be with you. Let us rest in that. Please just renew our peace in Christ's name.